Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Monday evening, March the 13th. Uh, somehow we wrapped up February, blinked once, and here we are in the middle of March. The Ides of March are actually upon us. Trivia question for you. What famous event was supposedly occurring on the Ides of March? The assassination of Julius Caesar. Oh, wow. Top of mind. That's very good. I actually had to look that up. Yeah, well, you blink and it's mid-March when you are busy traveling the the continent of North America. So welcome home for, for a minute, at least. It's glad whenever I can get a moment of your time to record. I sense a bit of hostility, but yes, it is good. <laughs> it is good to be home. You know, you sound like you are feeling your travels, but I hope you're feeling okay. Uh, you know, a few cross-country flights have appeared to have taken their toll on me but uh, i'm i'm better now that i'm with you and looking forward to what we're talking about this week <laughs> well I, and i imagine this weekend was obviously daylight savings time as well so i imagine leaping forward an hour didn't do anything for you i know how much you value your sleep these days so not only all the cross-country flights but then losing an hour on top of that must have been extra difficult for you in in general, it is, but luckily, you know, the evening time, it only feels, you know, it feels an hour earlier than normal. So I'm in better shape than I usually <laughs> Okay. I lo- love that. You know what? Love the positivity this week out of you. Every year around this time, it's like, oh, they're going to make it permanent. And then last year, the Senate actually passed the bill and make daylight savings times permanent, but didn't go anywhere in the house. And so another year, another year of us being like, are they going to make this permanent? Or are we going to have to keep going through this nonsense charade twice a year? But we will continue to do it for at least the next year. I'd be curious as to who's who's holding this up. Like who who really enjoys this daylight savings time, or uh, just enjoys changing it because we are trying to make daylight savings time perfect. And there are pros and cons to like wh- which one to go with. But yeah, I don't understand like the the impetus to keep it the way it is. No one seems to like it. Agreed. We could go on like the Indian Standard Time is off by like a half hour. We could just just split the difference and call it a day. Sure, sure. Um, but we're not talking about daylight savings time this episode. We are just focused on the second largest bank collapse in United States history, the collapse of Silver, Silicon Valley Bank. We hope that this episode will be good for people all along the spectrum, people that have no idea what's going on, people that are hearing about it, but maybe don't have the the time or energy to do a dive or deeper dive into it. And even for our top of our listener end with uh, in terms of like financial awareness and literacy and people who follow these things, hopefully we can provide some additional perspective on not only the financial side of things, but the, the political fallout from it as well. So it's a it's a one topic episode, but it's probably going to be a a deep sprawling dive in, into this topic. Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I mean, I think there's like there's definitely the what happened in the near term, and then there's kind of the idea of like what does this portend for the next six months, twelve months um, for the economy broadly. Yeah, for sure. Actually, Ricky, one other thing that I wanted to bring up before we get into this was, I don't know, this headline caught my eye because of the conversation we had last episode with Dan Fishman over, and again, that episode was focused on the war in Ukraine, but then you had brought in China's role that was kind of like looming on the the outside of it. And in that course, that conversation, Dan brought up, he was like, well, I think this might actually be an opportunity for China and the United States to encourage China like to advance on the world stage in some ways, if if we can make that happen. And you and I are both kind of like, I don't know how likely that is, but that's an interesting, uh, interesting little thought from Dan. And in a headline, like I said, that caught my eye this past week is Iran and Saudi Arabia agreed to restart uh, diplomatic relationships, which which they had been not not doing for seven years. And 
the the country that brokered it, China. Um, and so I was like, oh my goodness, this is like exactly what we kind of ban- bantered about last episode, and here we see it happening. And I was, and obviously all the articles about that were exactly what we had talked about, where the United States is like, well, look, this is good. Like any thawing of tensions in the Middle East and between Iran and Saudi Arabia is a good thing, but. China doing it as opposed to the United States is there with our biggest global rival. There's, there's some like, uh, we got to keep an eye on that. It's just, I think it's all fascinating, but whatever, really interesting based on the conversation that we had had last episode. I know with uh, certainly a, a little bit of trepidation of going too off the rails before we even on start. I, I've, I read the same thing and was sort of thinking, you know, the idea of us isolationism, which has kind of, we know was kind of put forth under the Trump administration, but has largely not been changed to, to much an extent under the Biden administration, just because of kind of the America first popularity that like this all of a sudden creates a vacuum on the, on the, on the world stage. And there are of course rivals who are, who are looking to amplify kind of their own uh, political standing, but also, their message, et cetera. And so I think, yeah, I think it's a really interesting development um, and certainly one to to keep an eye on. Sure. And maybe we'll circle back to that uh, in more depth at some point. But again, my perspective, like my initial reading of it was like, overall, it's a good thing for the world. And yeah, let's, let's continue to be wary of, of China, but this might be an example of where rivalry and competition is not such a bad thing. But again, not the point of this episode. Before we get into actually talking about Silicon Valley Bank, a quick reminder to everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Canhill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Canhill with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, what did the tree do when its bank closed? Picked up and leaved. Oh, see, I've given you one like that before, and you made a similar guess. It's it started oh, its own. Trees are the only puns that I know that belong with trees. I got nothing. Yeah, it just leaves. It started its own branch. So, a, hopefully, a fitting pun for this episode. All right, when we come back, we will get it right into it. So, being wary that this is a very complex subject and knowing ourselves that we have a tendency to just run with conversations and ideas for a while we're going to try to break this up into three segments and this is the way i got this idea from teaching that we used to do this at the beginning of units and the the segments are what i know what i want to know and then what I learned. And we used to do that like at the beginning of units for students. And it was like, all right, we're, we're going to introduce this idea. We're going to study this event. What do you know about this event? What are some things you want to know about this event? And then at the end, we circle back to it after the unit's over and say, what did I learn? So we're going to start with what I know. I am going to begin and try to give an overview of, of what I know thus far. Then, Ricky, you can hop in and build off, hopefully, everything, anything that I say. And then We'll come back and look ahead what what we're looking forward to, what we want to know going forward. And then at the end, hopefully we'll each have learned a few things that we can reflect on. So that that's the the structure of the episode. So I'll I'll start with what I know. So Silicon Valley Bank is not a bank that I had been aware of before late last week. It's not in the same category of some of like the major banks that I am aware of currently, or even that I was aware of back in the the 2008-2009 bank run recession. So Silicon Valley Bank was the country's 16th largest bank before it collapsed on Friday. It It's a bank that started in 1983, right around the time that the term Silicon Valley began to be applied to this area you know, around the mountains in San Jose. And the bank developed, uh, was a, a niche bank in some ways that was focused on like tech startups. And venture capitalists, they kind of built this new industry investing in these tech startups. And Silicon Valley Bank was pretty much the go-to bank for these newly funded businesses. Once once new startups began, it was almost guaranteed that they would put their money in Silicon Valley Bank. They could have placed it anywhere, but it was just kind of the culture of the area of the business that this is where you put your money. 
So the bank did was great for 40 years, and it flourished particularly during the pandemic when all of the remote work and the kind of shift in technologies or shift to more technologies led to huge investments in technology companies. Over the course of the years from 2019 to 2020, the Silicon Valley deposits grew from 67 billion to 173 billion, peaking at 198 billion. So it it grew almost three times its its size in, in three years. However, over the last year, as we were coming out of the pandemic and inflation started soaring, Silicon Valley Bank started to run into some trouble. So the bank had placed a lot of, had bought a lot of mortgage-backed securities at low interest rates during the years from 2019 to 2021. So I believe they bought about $117 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities from the government at interest rates that range like from 1.5 to 1.6%. Obviously, this was the interest rate for, that was the going rate for, for many years and, and certainly was very low at, at the time. And this was fine because they they anticipated uh, interest rates continuing to be like this and that this was a, a, a wise investment, essentially. But as interest rates have spiked over the last year, as the Federal Reserve tries to combat inflation, the bond prices declined. That would have been fine in and of itself but deposits in the bank also started to decline simultaneously starting last year. And this, again, makes sense as we kind of moved out of the pandemic and more back towards normalcy. There was less investment in these tech companies. And so the tech companies were putting smaller deposits, fewer deposits into Silicon Valley Bank. So that means that the tech companies were taking out money more quickly and simultaneously that Silicon Valley Bank's investments in the mortgage-backed securities were worth less. They were actually, they were kind of really taking a bath. They were, it was like a loss because interest rates had risen so quickly. So in order to meet the demands of their customers who are taking their money out, just like anybody else, right? If you go to the bank, you expect to be able to take your money out. So these companies were over the course of the last few months and the last few weeks, we're coming to the bank and taking their money out. And in order to get enough capital to pay those deposits, Silicon Valley Bank began selling some of these mortgage-backed securities, but they were taking huge losses on them. So they they sold last week $20 billion in these securities, but at a, a $2 billion loss. And they sent out essentially like a press release, uh, an email communication to their investors explaining that, but they didn't explain it very well. And then, so all of a sudden everyone's looking around and being like, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get my money out. And what comes is just a good old fashioned bank run. All of these, not all, but many of the companies, individuals that had deposited their money into Silicon Valley bank went and tried to take out that money it all happened very quickly. Thursday into Friday happened so quickly that the bank collapsed midday Friday and the FDIC had to step in, which is historic, stepped in in the middle of the day on Friday, declared that SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, was uh, had collapsed, was uh, insolvent, and that they were taking it over. They, they shut it down. And over the course of the weekend, everyone's been trying to figure out what's going to happen. Essentially, what I guess to, to wrap up what I know at this point, that Obviously, all of the the main companies in there were super worried that they weren't going to be able to continue to meet their payroll. But there are additionally, there's a number of smaller businesses that are wrapped up in SVB, and I, I even know that you know uh, SVB bought Boston Private Bank recently here in Boston, and so like there are a number of schools that have investments in Silicon Valley Bank. There's, you know, I have friends whose siblings were were saying or friends were were being like, we're getting emails from their bosses being like, we're not necessarily gonna be able to make payroll this week. And so while it seems 
far away. It's like this kind of bank in California, Silicon Valley. It's all about this tech center. Like with everything these days, Ricky, everything is so intertwined and it's actually not that far away. And there are people, it's, it's again, it's going to hit most in Silicon Valley, but there are people all across the country, businesses, schools all across the country that are going to be affected by this. The Federal Reserve said late last night, so late Sunday night, that they were going to um, ensure essentially that all deposits within SVB would be available to businesses today, Monday the 13th. And there's a lot in there. And that's something I'm sure we'll discuss more. Uh, the President Biden came out in, uh, in, a, in a very brief press conference this afternoon and said that like, hey, the banking sector solid, the government's on it. And as a whole, the government is doing everything they can to prevent the type of domino effect bank run collapse that we saw back in 2008, 2009. So Ricky, that is what I know. What else? What, what do you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll add to that that um, another bank in New York, Signature Bank, is now the third largest failed bank <clears throat> in uh, in U.S. history. So I'll add, um, you know, a plug for my delay tactics. You just wait long enough, and sure enough, there's more more news here. Um, I yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that that was really well summed up. I feel like it's probably worth just like putting some intuition on like how banks in general make money right so there is um it's essentially like a an interest spread game right so they have depositors who come put their money in and they expect you know a certain rate of return on savings on a cd on something else right very low rates of return and in in exchange for those low rates of return the bank gets to hold on to your money and what it does is turn around and figure out what's the appropriate mix of either loans or other investments that it can take with that money in order to, you know, while it pays you your low interest rate, it can make a slightly higher interest rate and basically make profit on the difference. Of course, any type of lending or investment comes with risk. And so that is on to the bank to sort of manage that risk. And as you rightly pointed out, there's sort of like a confluence of factors that all happened in and around the same time that became a big problem for the bank. And then on top of it, you have sort of the venture capitalists, the big sort of money movers all kind of getting together, maybe not in in like in a concerted action, but like pretty much coordinated that now it's time we got to take our money out of this bank because we don't know about its future. And right. This bank had 200, something along those lines, billion in assets and 42 were pulled out within a day. And obviously you lose lose that kind of money in one day. And now you're in a very tricky position where um, you have some assets that are liquid. Uh, so like a cash asset is something that you can easily transfer from one place to another, but something like long-term bonds, other types of holdings may not be as liquid that you could readily translate into cash without potentially like losing a lot of money and then be able to cover your depositors. And so, as you said, as as the run on the bank started, the government stepped in, basically said, we're taking over. FDIC is insuring. First, <clears throat> I think first thing that was important is that on Friday, as of Friday, FDIC insures depositors up to 250,000. The thing about Silicon Valley Bank is because it's sort of this bank of the the startups is not really like, you know, your personal bank that has a lot of small holders up to, you know, that would have accounts of 250,000. I think it says something of 90% of their holdings were well above that and thus not insured. <clears throat> so that was one potential problem that the government did kind of step in on on Monday and say, if you are a depositor, if you are not expecting risk when you put money into this bank, we are basically going to cover you through the FDIC insurance program, which is very interesting because it is going to put a big dent in that, in how that program kind of insures our broader banking system, at least in the near term. I think they're planning on some way of replenishing a lot of that stock. But <clears throat> that I think I thought that was one 
interesting piece of it. And then, um, yeah, the, I mean, the other part, like traditionally a lot of the holdings that Silicon Valley bank had were not considered risky government bonds, mortgage backed securities. These are, I mean, obviously we know what happened in 2008, but a lot of what we thought we had fixed was that these securities would no longer carry that underlying like risk that was not being highlighted. And of course, now you had this action by the Fed to increase the Fed Fed funds rate, which is decreasing um, the value of these bonds in in a pretty rapid clip. And we're sort of seeing like the first casualty of that action. I think that's also like worth mentioning as well. So it is like very interesting. Obviously the financial aspects are very um, like they're very entangled in terms of like how these things are, are moving, but there are also kind of politics at play. Like the Biden administration, very, very clearly not using the word bailout to say that we're covering kind of the, in kind of the depositors in this bank, right? That was like a, a word that elicited a lot of feelings in 2008 and one that they don't want to use now. Of course, the nightmare is this is Silicon Valley Bank from California for like the Biden administration. That's just like, a, you know, for the people who <clears throat> are going to want to view this as a failure of the administration, like you couldn't have any better like name of a bank and place that the bank does the majority of its business. So I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of things that are interesting, but those are a few that I was like keying in on. Sure. And I, I want to get into more of the argumentative stuff in the what I want to know section of this, but I, just to build off the first thing in terms of what I do know. So both you and I have referenced this organization, uh, this government entity called the FDIC. So the, the Federal federal Deposit, uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So uh, this was created after the Great Depression. And it was created specifically to avoid the types of bank runs that we saw in the Great Depression. So as you correctly noted, the FDIC, the policy is to guarantee that any deposit up to $250,000 will be insured by the FDIC. And it's really to protect, as you said, individuals, small businesses that are investing in these banks, right? If I would imagine the vast majority of people out there have less than $250,000 in the bank. And what the FDIC was created was that like, if you start hearing these, these terrible rumors out there, you start th- seeing that banks collapse, your instinct is to go and take your money. And that's what happened in the Great Depression. You have all the individuals that were lining up rushing to take out their money, and then that tri- triggered the beginning of the Great Depression. The FDIC prevents that by saying that like, hey, for all of you smaller individuals, businesses, we're going to guarantee that money. In terms of what I want to know, are we actually going to guarantee over 250,000. We can talk about that uh, later, but I think that's that's one of the, the big things is this was this was put into place to protect kind of like the the smaller individuals out there. Yeah, I mean I I think this is definitely something to look into further. As far as I understand, anyone who is considered a depositor is insured through this program vis-a-vis like the recent uh, announcement from the Biden administration. So that includes depositors yes. of 250K. Right. But th- that's a that's a policy change from what the FDIC's policy was prior to this weekend. And as again, I think you alluded to it, is that S- SVB is not a traditional bank, like even like even something like Bank of America, which is a massive bank. It's it's my bank, right? But it's 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 the bank for a lot of like regular people that are investing in it. And as you said, 93% of the depositors in SVB had holdings over 250,000. These are these are businesses, venture capitalists that earned that had a lot of of uh of assets with, within this bank. And so to insure up to 250,000 doesn't actually do a whole lot for these these businesses, but uh that's why the Fed has taken this what had prior been like an unprecedented step because SVB was so leveraged by a very small because they were like a niche bank they were so just tied to this tech sector in a way that the vast majority of other banks are not so it's uh it, it's a it's a unique situation in some ways even though like the overriding situation is like it's a bank run we've unfortunately certainly seen it before 
Yeah. I mean, the I guess the, the point of clarification on the Biden administration's part is if you are an investor in the bank, therefore, like you have some expectation that it's not a riskless asset that is not being covered by this program. So it is. So, yeah. So it will be interesting to see how it shakes out between those two groups um, within Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, like a lot of venture already got their money out. So that's, you know, that piece of it is gone. Maybe we've got about 150 billion or so left in assets. Um, I mean, I think that piece of it, though, continues to be something that is interesting. And I feel like we'll really like as as they sort of peel apart the different pieces, you know, this proverbial onion here and get to the layer where Wall Street insiders yet again kind of have the leg up on the common investor in that they, I mean, and it is, you know, part and parcel of the game. Maybe they didn't have any insider information, but, you know, they knew what to do with that announcement that, Hey, our debt raising is not going as well. We're going to look to issue some common stock or, you know, whatever it is to get additional cash and make a decision, you know, instantly to liquidate $42 billion in assets kind of thing. And that's like a, I think that's something that they'll definitely have to look at yet again. Um, they have all these like kind of the circuit breaker things in place. So I think SVB's ch- shares traded down something like 60% day over day from Thursday to Friday before the the thing was kind of basically federally taken over. Um, and there were some other small banks that were kind of going through similar crises that they basically just stopped trading. So that kind of the way that they you know, the GameStop thing that we talked about not too long ago, where these things seemingly kind of spiraling out of control, that there are some things in place now to kind of trip them and basically force everybody to take a pause. But, you know, first Silicon Valley Bank, then the Signature Bank, which I guess was much more tied up in cryptos, but similarly had some avenues to get out of it. But because of like the like as you were talking about the domino effect, this cascading nature of once people start getting concerned about one bank, like let's find all the banks that have a similar profile and should we be concerned about all of these banks? And I think the thing that is interesting is obviously we've got, you know, as you were alluding to the Bank of America's JP Morgan's of the world's multi-trillion dollars in assets, but a $200 billion bank, billion dollar bank is nothing to s- sneeze at. And if there are 10 of those at the same size, you know, I don't know if my math is going to fail me, but I think that's $2 trillion right there. So there are, I don't, I don't know. There is like a, a lot of like the administration saying, everybody calm down. This is an isolated incident. But I think there are clearly some other signs of trouble ahead. Well, that seems like a great transition into what we want to know going forward. So when we come back, let's get into that. Okay, so the first thing I want to know is really the umbrella question of how much is the federal government going to intervene here? Because while I don't think there is a right answer, I do think there are wrong answers. And it's really interesting the fact that it's the Biden administration, which is obviously so tied to the Obama administration. And this is the last time that we faced this was the Obama administration. And as you pointed out in the previous segment, the bailouts that happened at the end of the Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama administration were wildly unpopular. And this is, in some ways, an even trickier balance for the Biden administration because at least you know in the Bush and Obama years, these were m- massive like Lehman Brothers and um, and like uh, Bear Morgan and like all in uh, the Chase yeah, like uh, J Morgan Chase like all of these things. Bear Stearns, that's the one I was really thinking of. Yeah, it's like uh, these were banks that everyone knew they were holding. They were massive, kind of the, the quote, too, too big to feel, fail, and they affected everybody. Here we have this bank that is so tied in and leveraged by the tech center. It's in California, you said, but it's everything so interconnected. We already have, to your point of, we have another bank that's now being treated similarly in, in New York City with uh, 
Signature Bank, uh, our, our First Republic is is another one that was that was being treated similarly. Signature Bank, interesting note on that. Barney Frank, architect of the Dodd Frank Act, sit uh, sits on the board of Signature Bank. Um, but it's all uh, it's this is like at, reading through some of this stuff, Ricky. This is exactly what like real people are like railing against. Like I don't know if you saw the little meme going around where the like the CFO of Signature Bank was previously like the head of securities at Lehman Brothers in two, in 2007. I was like, look at all these people that just get like the same jobs. And so it's obviously the government can't do nothing, right? Like you, you can't just, and while I don't necessarily believe Biden when he comes out for five minutes and doesn't take any questions and says, everything's fine, folks, nothing to see behind the curtain here. Like that, I don't buy that. Like he has to say that because the alternative is that we actually do have a bank run. And this becomes, like I said, the first domino in a series of dominoes where like back in 2008, the, what what was it? Uh, Bear Stearns was in March, I think. And then Lehman Brothers was in September, right? And everyone was kind of like wondering which way it's going to go and then all of a sudden it collapsed completely and so like there this administration is well aware that we can't have another situation like that and so they have to do something but it's not popular to step in and bail out banks period and it's definitely not popular to bail out like venture capitalist tech center banks in california and it's not only this is one of those ricky again where the battle lines are going to be interesting because republicans far-right republicans and far-left democrats are both going to be saying if you want to take these risks, you have to pay the prices. Yeah, and and that's I think where kind of like who gets paid at the end of the day is going to be very very important because on the one hand, you do have this perception issue, right? Like no one wants to feel like if I put my money in a bank account that all of a sudden the bank could disappear and take my money with it, right? All right, so I just want to this reminded me so much of like the South Park episode. I don't know if you saw it. It's called like Margaritaville from back in 2009. And like one of the boys is trying to, and one of the main characters in the show is trying to like open, he's like a kid. He's a fourth grade, tries to open a bank account and he goes and gives it to them. And he, and he gives them like a hundred dollars and the, the bank uh, guys, there's like, and it's gone. And they're like, what? And then like the next person like comes up and like, all right, here's my life savings. I just wanted to pause in your back and it's gone. <laughs> Whatever. Like, so like no one wants that feeling again. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that is kind of like the like you know one of the fundamental pillars of you know life liberty and property or you know whatever right so like this is a very big perception problem if all of a sudden we have financial institutions that are supposedly as secure as a bank and a depositor money like disappears that being said <clears throat> who the depositors are who gets covered is very matters you know, like what I want to know is when he says that this is not going to be put at the bill of, you know, taxpayers, like what does that mean exactly? Because that's a lot. That, that's just not true. It's like, it's it's all like, to me, that's just all posturing and phrasing and, and ways to like sleight a hand, like card tricks here. Because so like it's to say it's not on the backs of taxpayers. And again, to the administration's credit, the way they've couched it is quite smart, I think, because they said that like, this is going to come. So first of all, all banks pay into this like insurance fund for exactly this reason. Like they, they, it's almost like banks have their own insurance where they pay into it. So if a situation like this happens, the federal government will use that money to back their depositors. But um, Jerome Powell, head of head of the Federal Reserve, came out and said that there will now be a new special assessment on banks that will provide for all of this these additional insurance that we're going to provide for depositors in SVB. But like what we know, Ricky, like if we know intuitively what happens, right? Like that's like saying that we're going to place the burden on supermarkets, right? For for like this new food things. What's going to happen when you go and buy bread or eggs, that price is going to go up. Eventually, it always comes down in capitalism to the consumers, right? The consumers will pay for this. So while it might not be at the first level, like a new tax in like my bill that's going to be new this year, it's going to be when I try to open up a new account or when I try to do anything at my bank, all of those fees are going to go up because like now we have to pay for all these people, these businesses that failed in SVB. Yeah, I mean, that that's a, that is exactly right. I, th- I think there is a bit of like a misunderstanding in terms of public perception that like banks would for some reason do something for nothing, right? Like there has been all sorts of re-regulation on like, how can we stop banks from penalizing sort of their poorest customers through like the, you know, late credit card fees and like all this stuff. 
Well, all that means is if capital is drying up in those areas, they're going to have to figure out different ways to do it, whether that's by engaging in riskier investment activity or, yeah, like starting creating different fees higher at the top. I think you're absolutely right. Yes, by saying that we're not spending federal dollars on this does not obviate the fact that obviously somebody's going to have to pay for it. And at the end of the day, the banks aren't going to like suck it up and just take this hit because of Silicon Valley Bank. They're going to figure out ways to pass it on to the consumer. Yeah. All right. So another thing I'm wondering about is who takes the blame for this? Because this is where you and I were talking before we started is Senator Warren wrote uh, an op-ed in the New York Times this morning, and she's she's ready to point fingers. She's ready to put people at the stake because again, to her credit, she's been saying a lot of this stuff for years. This is where she came in when she helped found like the consumer um, uh, protection financial bureau. Uh, and like all of these things were banks. She's, she's been for increasing regulation. She points the finger, not only at the bank itself, but at the fed. Um, and so it was interesting. I don't know if you had a chance to read her op-ed, but she highlights, of course, that the head of Silicon Valley Bank made $9.9 million last year, including a $1.5 million bonus uh, because of the profitability of the bank, right? And the the head of Signature Bank that we said, I think made uh, over, made $8.6 million last year. And so like, these are the, the, you score good points pointing the finger at those people. But there's also pointing the, the finger at the federal government, which is really interesting. Her her take, obviously, is that we need more regulation and that some of the deregulation that happened under the Trump administration um, fostered an environment that made it easier for something like this to happen. You know, and that's been her position for a long time is that these banks need more regulation. And so this is another example of like, I told you so. That's one thing. I, I certainly think that the federal government's in, in a really interesting position because these rising rates it's hard to say that they didn't lead almost while they were not solely responsible for SB, SBB's collapse, they led almost directly to it. Why are why is the Fed rising rates to fight inflation, which has come about for a number of factors, as we discussed back with Matt Kinch in the first episode we did in January, but for some of the policies from the Biden administration and from the Trump administration, to be fair. But this feels like, Ricky, a, a circular firing, firing squad here where everybody's going to be lining up to say it's this person's fault. And I'm I'm fascinated to find out who ends up really taking the fall for this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we did talk a little bit about inflation and like what the Fed's tool is, right, which is to basically just raise the Fed funds rate is a very crude instrument for what seems like a very specific set of problems that are that is sort of leading to our current inflationary environment the i think that i think it is interesting that well it's not really interesting i guess it's par for the course that elizabeth warren is is saying this is a specifically a lack of regulation and you've got the greedy big banks and they're taking on too much risk i think there is obviously an element to that um, of course, you know, one year ago when crypto is riding high and all the tech startups that are basically like keeping our economy running while everyone shuttered indoors and also reaping massive, massive profits from it. Like, you know, you look at you, you try and look at what's going on today through that 2021 lens. And all of a sudden you're like, there's no way. Right. But of course, <clears throat> these things do happen. A lot of this stuff is unforeseeable. And the question is, like, to what extent does the government need to protect kind of the average person in this? And like you said, right, the average person is the one who ends up paying for increased insurance for, you know, when uh, when something is risky and now deemed riskier, um, there's like a cost to that. There's a tangible cost to that that banks incur and then they, they pass on. So, like, I think, I mean, this is you know, a kind of a core tenant of capitalism. And then it comes down to when risk is taken like this, because it isn't just that, okay, fine. We let the bank fail. What does that mean? That it's not like the little guy doesn't get screwed in that scenario either. And I think that's like the bigger problem is that there isn't like an easy way to stick it to the man and to like save the little guy in this situation like either thing that you're doing, whether you bail them out or not, the little guy ends up paying. 
Yeah, it's like it's a it's a it's a sad but but true kind of just like I guess like a truism of society. Uh, I guess a couple more things that I'm I'm interested in watching going forward is is this the first domino? And I don't think we'll know that for a little while actually because when it initially came out, so many of the reports were pretty much like. This because I said this now like three times because this was such like a niche bank that this is not something where this was like a broader crisis where all of the major banks and investment companies were leveraged with the subprime mortgage mortgage crisis back in the mid two thousands like everyone was just over leveraged for for terrible like un, uh, overvalued investments. This is confined to a very narrow part of the tech sector. And this is going to be probably brutal for the tech sector, which has already been struggling. It's been like the one area of the economy, which is shedding jobs while we continue to add jobs at like a, really a ridiculous rate um, over the past year, despite inflation. But like, so it's bad. I mean, I should have brought this up earlier, but some of the companies that are heavily invested in Silicon Valley Bank are like Roblox, um, Comp- Compass, Coffee, Etsy, uh, Vox, Roku, Vimeo, like there, there are a bunch of like major companies that are, are involved in, in this bank. Um, but uh, obviously, the Fed stepping in is trying to avoid the domino effect. But I don't know; it, it's hard. I, I'd be curious. I don't know. Obviously, there's no insight to this. No one really knows what's going to happen. But that's I will be looking out for that because all the efforts in the coming days and weeks will be to prevent a domino effect. But something I read um, someone uh, in an article was quoting, I guess there's like a Lord Keynes quote that says that like all markets are kind of run by like animalistic instincts. You know what I mean? Is that like, you just have to have this like collective faith that like the economy is going to work again. This takes me back to the South park episode where like once the recession and, and Randy Marsh is like, the economy is angry at us. Like, like almost like it's some sort of God, but like it, it is this collective thing where if all of like the venture capitalists and tech companies last week had reached out and reassured each other and been like, hey, none of us take money out. This would never have happened. But that's not what happened. And once you see someone else taking their money out, you don't want to be the one that's left not being able to get your money out. And so that's how it's just like this. It's very human thing where you don't want to be the one left holding the bag at the end. And so everything happens so quickly and it's not necessarily built on rationality, but built on emotion. So I'll definitely be looking out because even though like, Everything that the government said and did in the last 24 hours, you would think was good and still stocks today in all the major banks plummeted. Yeah. Stocks in the banks plummeted, but S&P and elsewhere were relatively okay, which is, I mean, also interesting in and of itself. The, I think that point that you made about, and and Biden was sort of talking about it too in his little presser was like, Hey, job, you know, I've created more jobs than any other president in any history ever. And <laughs> look at that. That's a, that, people are going to say that's Ricky coughing, but that was him choking on his own words. Cause he knows how ridiculous that, that uh, touting of that achievement is. <laughs> you know what I think about that achievement. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I just want to come back to the, the, sort of what you said about the jobs numbers and this kind of interesting dynamic that we are still in, which is like so many things point to, we should be in a recession, but also like we're not in a recession because we keep adding jobs and, you know, really what I want to know, and I'm sure is like the million dollar question is how does the fed react to this? Because this seems like that first real unintended consequence of jacking up interest rates and now you have a situation where the economy is still overperforming compared to expectation when you think about how high the interest rates are, right? We're expecting the economy to cool, and yet we're still adding jobs at a pretty substantial clip. And so the problem now is, for the Fed, what to do about inflation? Because if we continue to increase interest rates, it is not entirely clear that we won't throw the country into recession, While at the same time, like a lot of people are saying that if you actually want to cool inflation, that is the only way to do it. Like you do need basically a severe downturn to just cut spending off 
before you can kind of start to build back again. It's we've sort of seen it in the 80s. We had obviously our computer crash or you know tech crash, tech bubble in the early 2000s. Again in 2008, like this stretch that we've been on of economic growth has been the longest sustained stretch without a pure recession in in relatively like history. So like, are we just due? I guess. That's a really fair point. And of course, that was the last what I want to know as well, because I read this. It was a cool little phrase that stuck with me. It said this is both a sobering and salutary moment for the Fed, because obviously this whole they, they've been going what we've been talking about for months now, Ricky, this quote unquote soft landing of like, oh, I think we can get inflation down without sending us into a recession. And other economists have been like, I really don't think that's possible. And this is that moment where like this, in some ways, exactly what the Fed wanted. They wanted to tighten the economy so that people making risky investments, like a lot of the VCs were, uh, and a lot of these tech companies were, it would be harder for them to do it. And so there would be like less chances to take on the economy, less money out there, people tightening their belts. That's great. But obviously, this is super sobering because you have the 16th largest bank and now another bank falling where this could tip us in depending how the dominoes go into a really hard recession, which obviously no one wants, but I don't know, Ricky, like it's, and just to go back to this, what the fed's doing, like the economy, like has just continued to grow. Like it, it's even though inflation kind of peaked last June, June of 2022, it's still at like over 6% month over month, year over year, which is like uh, just crazy. And again, the fed's goal is 2% year over year. So it's still inflation is still three times what the Fed wants it to be. And uh, it feels like if it wasn't I'm trying to you know, thread the thread the needle, Ricky, that it feels like the needle got even smaller over the last few days. Yeah, and maybe that is a, uh, a good spot to take us into our our third third and final segment of the after of the evening. All right. Well, I'm I'm definitely curious to hear what what you learned in our in our final segment called "What Did I Learn?" But I think my main takeaway or something that I was I feel like very quickly reminded of is that it's kind of in the nature of these financial institutions to figure out how to push the envelope against the regulations and to like take as much risk as possible within sort of I like I don't know if they were doing something that they shouldn't have been doing legally or not but as far as I know <clears throat> kind of just like pushing that envelope in that direction and that you know we certainly I think it's clear that we did learn some things from what happened in 2008 but that we're not that our sort of financial system is still is not like impervious to these types of things happening and then i think it's like the age old like just being reminded of knowing that you just don't know a lot about what's going on and and what how a lot of these things kind of work in general sure i'll i'll build off that a little bit some of this of what i learned is just kind of reaffirming what I already thought I knew. And that first part that you mentioned of that, it's just human nature, I think. And maybe you can boil it down or try to make it more narrow. And so like, it's, it's the nature of capitalism and specifically as opposed to human nature in general, but I tend to believe it's, it's, they're really one and the same where, like you said, people are going to try to, to push the envelope and be risky and do as much as they can legally or in some cases illegally and just to, to try to make as much money as possible for themselves and, and their investors. And it doesn't matter what the sector is, like whether it's in the internet or in housing or in tech, like it's, that's just what's going to happen. And in that vein, that when there is inevitable fallout from those <laughs> people pushing envelopes, people are just going to retreat back to their same corners, right? Like you're going to have the people on on the far left saying more regulation, more regulation, more regulation, like that would solve this problem. People on the right being like, well, let, let them fail, right? Like if, and I mean, there's nothing I hate worse, Ricky, than like the 
quote unquote like free market Republicans that are now like oh free market until I need something right like it, until like oh now now um, you know this bank that I'm invested in or or my people or or hurt no we need the government to step in now you know it's like the same thing when people are like oh I'm not going to take federal funds but now I have like a big hurricane in, in my state and oh please please give me all the all the federal funds here can't have it both ways um, so yeah I mean I I think it I guess it. <laughs> it feels like deja vu in some ways. I think I've mentioned this before that I'm currently reading President Obama's book and he talks about like how hard it was when he was coming, you know, when at the end of his campaign in 2008 and then stepping into this the financial crisis you know, in the beginning of 2009 where there are just no good options here. And he's like, I understand the anger of not bailing out, of bailing out these like these big banks and what seems like all of these like really rich people who are playing games with people's livelihoods and life savings. But he was like, what, what do you want me to do? Right. He was like, we can't, we can't just let it fail. And so he's like, I get the optics of it, but, and I'm just going to have to eat this politically because like, that's the solution. Like there is no, I don't like, I don't think the solution is the Elizabeth Warren, like let's regulate these banks to death. And unfortunately I don't think my solution of let them fail works either. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think building off that, you know, your criticism of Republicans who promote free market until all of a sudden the free market's not working for them anymore. I think it, a similar criticism applies on the left, right? Like the whole call after 2008 is like, let's break up these big banks. Well, what do you have? You would have like a bunch of smaller Silicon Valley banks, which because of their size actually evade some of the strictest um, regulations that we have out there, like a lot of the capital ratios, um, leverage ratios that some of the bigger banks, like the city bank, city groups and the Bank of America's have to follow because of their size. Silicon Valley doesn't necessarily. And I think it bears noting, I, I find that like, yes, you know, in general, from a capitalist sort of point of view, the more competition we have, the better for consumers. But the problem is the more competition you have for regulators, it becomes a lot trickier to sort of follow what these individual companies are doing when one is in crypto, the other is in something else and like something new every day. And the more they're sort of spread out and decentralized, the more you have to invest in enforcement and all these other things, right? Like regulations are only as good as far as you can make them count for something. So there's, yeah, um, there, there. Are, I feel like there are uh, so many things at play, and cl- and as you said, like not a clear solution in either direction. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, let's say you know wishful thinking that the Biden administration is able to uh, sort of corral this. Whatever gets paid out of the FDIC gets paid out, and and we kind of go on business as usual. Like, is that a good thing or is it not? I think some people were looking at 2008 thinking, all right, great. We finally blew this system up and now we can build one back that's better. And I think maybe the other thing that people are learning when this comes out is that like, "Mm, maybe things are, you know, as much as things change so much, they stay the same. So. Yeah, that's fair. The build back better. Ricky, love that. Uh, it's interesting. A term I heard for the first time in many years uh, was in a Wall Street Journal editorial, and it said that maybe we're the only people that care care about moral hazards anymore. And that term came up back in 2008, 2009, where a moral hazard essentially like was this economic term that became like a mainstream term where that like, hey, if you behave badly, right, in, in this case, behaving badly doesn't necessarily mean illegally, but just means like, taking too many risks like you need to fail like you need to learn your lesson like one of those you know as a kid you can say don't touch the stove but you don't know until you actually get burned that oh this stove is dangerous and so there is i think an appetite out there for like all of these investors have been playing fast and loose with some of the regulations like this is you know we can't how we're going to continue to you know now alter the fdic's 
previous policy where like depositors over 250k you're gonna get their money back like if we keep moving the bar at some point like why why wouldn't you as a bank continue to push the envelope because you know that the government's going to keep bailing you out and so maybe maybe congress changes to 500,000 next time but oh all of a sudden 93 percent of investors in this new bank are over 500,000 well we got to bail them out and like that really does bother me and that's where like my true like free market is and i know that the free market to your point ricky what else i learned what you said earlier that the little guy always gets stomped on this i understand that like me allowing my policy allowing svb just to fail would actually hurt a lot of people would hurt like schools here in boston that would get who probably have over 250k in there it would hurt them but man i can't i can't have i just uh it really bothers me like <laughs> yeah i mean there is a sense of like as long as we define the rules and everyone's playing by the rules the outcomes are less important because the game is fair and i think yes like yes the great point well said yeah i will say i don't i'm not entirely sure uh what finance class you learned that moral hazard ruling because i th- i think i think what they were talking about is slightly different but i think the point stands in that like if you if you like wave around the stick and then are afraid to use it or never use it then it loses its meaning and all of a sudden these rules that we have no are no longer yeah, they no longer like have the same meaning. And and that is very problematic when you're trying to wield this very unwieldy financial system that we have created for ourselves. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Um, hopefully, like I said at the beginning, this was interesting, useful uh, to people all kind of across the spectrum in terms of knowledge of this topic. Please, we say this every time, but like if you have thoughts or with a topic like this, if you have more information, if we got something wrong or we missed something, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us. Again, uh, you can follow us on Instagram, a underscore gentlemen's underscore disagreement. We would, we would, we always appreciate feedback, but on something like this, where especially speaking for myself, I'm a little out of my comfort zone, a little out of my depth with some of this. So we'd love to hear back from, from many people that are listening out there. Indeed. Contrary to popular belief, I think we do like to be corrected on occasion. Uh, It means we're learning. So definitely. uh, Yeah, we can add, we can add it. Yes. All right. If people reach out, we'll start next episode with uh, what, what else I learned. Yeah, indeed. All right, man. Till next time. See you soon. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some morning you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands and folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The value of sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me
When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But, oh, I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lies head. And folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lies head. Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning bus I need an early morning